and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another episode of iBuzz. And today I'm delighted to welcome Con Sloboshtikov, who will take us on a deep dive into the world of animal language. Con is Professor Emeritus of Biology at Northern Arizona University and the co-founder and CEO of Zulingua a company that is using artificial intelligence technology to decode animal communication. Khan has published extensively in peer-reviewed journals and has put together wonderful resources, including videos on YouTube on animal communication and language with lots of information and beautiful footage. Khan has been featured in magazines, newspapers, and on radio and TV, including documentaries, the BBC, Talk of the Town, Wild Kingdom, Animal Planet, and Prairie Dog Chatter. His research involved the study of animal languages and communication, and his book on animal languages, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, Learning the Language of Animals from St. Martin's Press in 2012, explores the issues of animal languages. Welcome to the podcast, Con. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today and really go into all kinds of aspects of animal communication and animal language. Now, for those of you who haven't maybe met you, read your books, or have heard about all the amazing work that you're doing, could you start with a short introduction, how you perhaps got to studying language and communication in the first place? Sure. Actually, my interest in language goes back quite a long ways, uh, even though I didn't realize it for a long time. And that is because uh, initially I grew up speaking Russian. And uh, so Russian was the language that I knew until my parents moved to the United States, where I didn't know a single word of English. But I was put into school where everybody assumed somehow that uh, genetically everybody in the class should be able to speak English. And so they were perplexed as to what this person was who didn't speak a word of English and was trying to figure it out. But gradually over time, I started to learn phrases in English and words in English. And what would happen is that I would think of a phrase in Russian, translated in my mind into English, and then when the answer came back in English, I would then translate it back into Russian, which took some time. 
So my teachers in school were worried that apparently they thought I had a language disability. So they sent me to a child psychologist who had the curious theory that people who spoke two languages, kids who spoke two languages, invariably developed stuttering. So I was sent to a, a class for stutterers, taken out of my classroom, sent to a class for stutterers, and they taught me all kinds of ways to cure my stuttering. And I tried to explain to them, and my parents tried to explain to them that I don't stutter. I just don't speak English fluently yet. But because this expert child psychologist pronounced that I was a stutterer, according to his theory, then I stayed in these classes for quite a long time until my doctor, who was very prominent in the society of the city where I was, and knew all of the members of the school board, wrote a, a letter to the principal saying that he has heard me speak Russian to my parents. He knows that I don't stutter. And if they don't get me out of the stuttering class right away, he will personally take it up with the school board. Amazingly, right after that, I was released from stuttering class. And so that stayed with me for a long time in sort of a dormant level. But what it really percolated through eventually was that here was an expert making a pronouncement based on a theory and not necessarily based on observable facts. His theory was that children with second languages inevitably stutter and he saw me as a confirmation of the theory without taking into account the alternate explanation that I just didn't know enough English to be able to formulate complete sentences. And so that led me to eventually to looking at animal communication. And I got into that in a roundabout way because initially I was interested in exploring social behavior in prairie dogs. But when I noticed that prairie dogs had alarm calls, I started to think that perhaps there is something in the alarm calls that might be more complex than just simply an expression of fear. So the idea at the time was that uh, if say a prairie dog makes an alarm call, it sort of sounds like cheep, 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 cheep. And that's just an expression of fear and nothing else. It's not trying to convey any actual information about anything outside of the prairie dog. It's just expressing the internal state of the prairie dog. And I started to wonder if maybe that's not true and maybe there might be actual information that the prairie dog is trying to convey to other prairie dogs. And that's where this idea of experts having their own theories might be wrong came into play because uh, I started to think, okay, at the time, nobody was saying that animals could have language. Nobody was saying that animals could 
have information that they intentionally communicate to others, but maybe they're wrong. And maybe they were looking at it in different ways. So that's a roundabout way of saying exactly how I got into what I was doing, but it's based on the idea that maybe we have to keep an open mind about our theories and maybe we have to look at all of the facts and maybe we have to look at alternative explanations and ask, okay, if our theory is not correct, what's another way of looking at it? And would the facts fit that as well? So anyway, as I say, that's a, a long-winded explanation of how I got to where I, I got. Yes, and thank you so much for sharing that personal story also of how, because that must have been quite a distressing situation for you. Um, I mean, I, I'm bilingual in the sense my mother is Italian, my dad is Dutch, but luckily um, I have never had to experience what you've gone through. So, you know, for sure uh, that must have been, um, you know, quite distressing for you. And, and, and now you also talk about how that then in a way, you know, gave you lots of things to think about on how to move uh, through in your research and also the things that are interesting to you with regards to language communication and expert opinions as you talk about. So thank you so much for sharing that. Well, you're welcome. Yes, and I think you, you talked about, you know, you were interested in social behavior of, of animals. And can you talk a little bit about uh, where you were working? Because uh, perhaps some people, you talked about prairie dogs, uh, perhaps some people don't, uh, there's maybe more information that you could share with us of where were you doing your studies? What species did you work on? And um, you spoke a little bit about, you know, the intentionality of animals, of what type of communication they, uh, they have, or what they are trying to convey to each other. Uh, so what are some of the things that you're focused on? Sure, well, I got into studying prairie dogs also by a roundabout route. Initially, when I came to Northern Arizona University, which is in the northern part of Arizona, it's at uh, 3,000 meters, of, no, maybe about 2,500 meters elevation in a, a pine forest, mostly. I was interested in studying beetles that have defensive secretions. These beetles are black, beetles that are fairly large. They're about maybe three centimeters long. And when a predator disturbs them, they do a headstand behavior in that they stand with their head pointing down to the ground and their tail end pointing up. And if a predator continues to disturb them, they squirt a noxious solution of quinones and hydrocarbons, which disorient the predator. And so there are other beetles that have the same behavior, but they don't actually squirt any noxious secretions, but they look very much like the ones that do in a case of Batesian mimicry. And I was interested in finding out what predators would be fooled by this and what predators would not be fooled by this and uh, what sort of evolutionary advantage this might give to the mimics in 
having this behavior but not being able to have the defensive secretions. And so in the process of doing this, I would pick up many of these beetles. Uh, the beetles are active at night and I would look at them and then as dew would form on my mustache and beard, I would take my hand that I would have defensive secretions on and wipe away the moisture from my mustache and get a good whiff of these defensive secretions. And I had some of these beetles in my laboratory also because I, I was uh, studying uh, how many eggs they laid and a variety of life history things about them. And one day I walked into my laboratory and took a breath and my lungs started to fill with fluid. And I realized this is bad because apparently I have become allergic to the defensive secretions and I can no longer work with these beetles. My dilemma was that part of my contract at Northern Arizona University said that I had to do research. And if I can't do research on these beetles, what can I do research on? And at that time, there were a lot of prairie dogs in the vicinity of my university. Now, prairie dogs are rodents. They're roughly about, um, oh, I would say uh, maybe 20 centimeters long, and they weigh about uh, half a kilogram. So they're relatively small animals, and they live in colonies. These colonies are called towns. And what the prairie dogs do is they dig extensive burrow systems in the ground with multiple entrances and exits. And inside the burrow system are sleeping chambers, there are bathroom chambers, there are resting chambers, there are chambers where prairie dogs can turn around with one going down and one going up out of the burrows. And the animals are territorial. They live in group territories where perhaps anywhere between five and 20 prairie dogs all share a territory which they communally defend. And so I thought, well, if I can't work on the beetles, maybe I can do something with prairie dogs. And I was always interested in social behavior. Um, so I looked into what is known about social behavior of prairie dogs, and at that time, there really wasn't very much that was known about them. So I thought, well, this would be a perfect research project. So I started looking at the social behavior of prairie dogs and ultimately found that uh, these animals have a very rich social life. What they do is, in addition to the alarm call vocalizations that they have, they also have things like social chatters where they'll chatter to each other. And also when they meet up, they kiss each other. So they will open up their mouths and stick their tongues together and do that for about two or three seconds and then run off. And so the territories, are, as I mentioned, are communally defended and so I was interested in knowing, uh, is there a dominance structure in this? Is there a hierarchy? Uh, how are the territories communally defended? Are all of the animals in their relatives or are they not related to each other? 
and what is the relationship between uh, the resource base, which is the uh, plants that the prairie dogs feed on, and the social structure. And so ultimately what I found is that uh, the more diverse and abundant the resource base is, the larger the group size of the prairie dogs. And the other key finding was that uh, not all of the animals within a territory are related to each other. Some of them are unrelated with background, with the same background relatedness as the entire colony. So the prevailing idea at that time was that social groups develop through kin structure, that relatives are the ones that form the social groups. But I was showing that non-relatives could also form social groups and that the social groups varied according to the distribution and abundance of the resources. So that territories that had uh, very limited resources uh, with very few plants of different species for the prairie dogs to eat had very small group sizes and territories that had abundant resources had large group sizes. So I continued to work on actually the social behavior of prairie dogs in parallel with my language studies, culminating in these uh, DNA studies of the relatedness, uh, all of these kinds of studies I was doing with my graduate students. But then in the process of working with the prairie dogs, I, uh, with the social structure of the prairie dogs, I noticed that they did have alarm calls and started thinking about exploring the possibility of uh, that the alarm calls might have more information and started designing experiments which would allow us to test these kinds of things. Wonderful, so many different things that you have studied, different questions that you have asked. And I had no idea that there was so, I, I knew that they had extensive burrows, but that they had so many different ones for different functions as well. And, uh, and it's just wonderful to hear about, you know, contributions of non-relatives and social structure and chatter. And of course, we want to hear more about that. And um, the important part perhaps here also that I'm sure you can tell us a lot about is, could you tell us a little bit more about the different approaches and thoughts on who can have language before we dive into, you know, what language is or language-like abilities are? Sure, the dominant approach even now is that humans are the only ones who are capable of language and who have language and all the other animals are only able to communicate, but are not able to have language. And so what this does is this sets up a uh, us versus them scenario. We humans are so smart and intelligent that we have language. And because we have language, we've been able to accomplish a whole bunch of different things. And also because we have language, we are able to think we're able to feel and describe our, our feelings. We are sentient beings, whereas all the other animals are not capable of language, are not capable of thinking, and probably are not sentient beings also. And so 
this dominant paradigm has meant that we could push animals aside into sort of a lower category from us and uh, say that we are so superior because these poor animals don't have language, they can't communicate with each other, they can't share their thoughts. In fact, they can't have thoughts because the idea is that you need language to think. And so therefore that has allowed us to push animals into a subservient category where we are the only ones who are so superior and because of that, we can do whatever we want with animals. So when we are talking about like who can have language and why this is, like you say, important, people say you need language to be able to formulate thoughts or to communicate to others. And this is why often also when it comes to, you know, protecting animals or being the voice for animals, uh, really also, you know, some people will say, well, you know, is there, is there really a need to be vo the voice for animals as in speaking them for them versus, you know, are we actually representing the animals in ways that where they can actually express themselves in what it is that they want. And before we got into the podcast recording, you and I briefly also talked about, you know, people living with animals and understanding animals and having an empathy for animals. And, you know, how do we understand uh, the language of other animals, regardless or not, whether, um, you know, people believe that they can, can have thoughts about uh, other things or communicate. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is language actually? And why do people think you have to have language or language-like abilities to even be able to speak um, either to, uh, for yourself, about yourself, or to communicate uh, what is in your interest? Sure. So let me talk about how biologists tend to view communication versus language. And also linguists fall into the same category too. And that is that uh, biologists tend to view communication as something that is a hardwired instinctive process. So a signal comes into an animal and the animal is through instinct automatically giving a pre-programmed response to that signal. It doesn't change, it's always pre-programmed. The animal has no uh, intention of communicating any information to another animal. It just comes out as a pre-programmed response. So that communication is viewed by many biologists as uh, a mechanical kind of process, hardwired through instinct and through evolution, so that animals really cannot modify what they are trying to signal to another animal. It's just all ritualized and, and instinctive. Whereas language has flexibility. And I talk about uh, language as having five different categories, although linguists have a variety more categories, which I'll touch on briefly. But the five categories that I talk about are flexibility in that the animal can choose which signal to produce in a given context, 
intentionality, the animal uh, intends to communicate information to another animal. Um, novelty, in the sense that the animal can come up with uh, a novel structure uh, or novel words, so to speak, the way that we produce novel words like cell phone 20 or 30 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, would be a completely meaningless concept to us. Or Xeroxing would be a meaningless concept uh, 60 years ago. So novelty and then structure, which is uh, roughly equivalent to grammar, and then to a certain extent, uh, syntax, although syntax and grammar often go hand in hand in, in many languages, such as, for example, in, in Russian. Uh, just so that your listeners can understand uh, what syntax is that I'm referring to, if I say, the man robbed the bank, I can use exactly the same words and say the bank robbed the man, and I'm changing the context of the sentence. In one case, the man is doing something to the bank. In the other case, the bank is doing something to the man. Now, uh, in some cases, in some languages, that's valid. In other languages, it's not so valid, like in Russian, for example, uh, because uh, words have declensions. You can change the order of the words in a sentence, but it may sound weird to some speaker, but at least the speaker will know in each case exactly what you mean. So uh, linguists have uh, a variety of criteria. There is a, a linguist, his name was Hockett, who came up with 13 different criteria for what animals should have in a language for it to be accepted as a language. Uh, and many of those criteria are related to the physical properties of the communication system. But some of them are uh, things like uh, displacement, where the animal uh, is referencing something that is displaced in space or displaced in time. So that I could say, I saw uh, my cousin yesterday, or uh, my cousin lives in New York City, uh, something like along these lines. Um, and there's a variety of other criteria which are, are technical that uh, really are too technical for, for this point right now. But uh, linguists say that these have to be found in animal communication systems for that system to be considered a language. Now we have found all of these in prairie dogs in our work with prairie dogs and increasingly people are finding these kinds of things also in other animals as well. Wonderful, thank you so much for giving context and giving more details on language, language-like abilities, criteria, and the difference between communication and language. That's very helpful for us to you know, really think and also learn new vocabulary for an area that for sure also in, in zoos and aquariums, wildlife centers, sanctuaries is still um, you know, in its infancy in study and how we, you know, and also knowing that, you know, what are the possibilities of us using research to get a better understanding of how this might be 
uh, important to our care and welfare programs, which will come back later as well. Now, you have spent a lot of time writing of lots of different things, including, of course, as we said, peer-reviewed and book chapters and, and, of course, also your own books. And can you talk a little bit about your book on uh, communication and community in an animal society? Sure. Uh, my book, Communication, uh, or my book, Prairie Dogs, Communication and Community in an Animal Society, uh, grew out of my work with prairie dogs. I realized that uh, I really wanted to summarize everything that we knew about prairie dogs, not only about their social system, not only about their uh, communication system, but also what we know about their general biology, what we know about uh, conservation efforts of prairie dogs, because so the thing with prairie dogs is that uh, we now have roughly about one to 2% of the prairie dogs that we had 120 years ago. During that time, uh, they have been systematically poisoned by government agencies and by private individuals. Uh, their colonies have been paved over into parking lots because uh, they tend to build their colonies in flat areas. And these are just perfect for shopping centers and for parking lots and so on. Uh, also, um, with the expansion of agriculture, prairie dogs have been poisoned out. And also, prairie dogs are very susceptible to a disease called bubonic plague, which was introduced into the United States in 1900 in San Francisco from Asia and gradually has spread throughout much of the United States. And a variety of animals are susceptible to bubonic plague, but prairie dogs are incredibly susceptible so that when bubonic plague, which is bacterial disease, gets into a prairie dog colony, anywhere between 95 and 100% of all the animals in that colony die from the disease within two weeks. So, colonies go extinct very rapidly once the bubonic plague gets into the colonies. And we still don't know exactly how the plague gets into the colonies, but because the plague is transmitted by fleas, one possibility that has been suggested is that coyotes come and eat dead prairie dogs that have died from the plague, and the fleas jump off the prairie dogs onto the coyotes. And dogs and coyotes are very resistant to plague, so they don't get it. But as the coyotes go to another prairie dog colony, they please jump off the coyote and uh, onto the prairie dogs and, and infect another colony. So I wanted to write about all of this. And also another thing that I wanted to include in that book is something about the economics of prairie dogs, uh, which is in a chapter, how much is a prairie dog worth? And I wanted to include this because I saw that people who are interested in conservation will talk to people who are making laws from the standpoint of, well, we must conserve these wonderful 
wonderful animals because they have such a wonderful beauty. They have such a wonderful place in our worlds. Uh, uh, they make us happy. Uh, they deserve to be around us. And a lot of people who make laws don't really appreciate these arguments. They appreciate economic arguments in that uh, how much money can we save by conserving these animals? How much money do we lose by getting rid of these animals? And so I include a chapter in that book about how prairie dogs are expensive to eradicate and actually the cost of eradication exceeds the benefit that can be recouped from eradicating them monetarily and also how they contribute to ecosystem services by maintaining diverse ecosystems, which allows a variety of other animals, some of which are uh, economically important, like cattle, to exist and to thrive. So, uh, so that was my idea with writing the book. I summarized not only what I and others have done with the social behavior, not only what I and others have done with uh, the communication behavior, but also the conservation aspects, the economic aspects of prairie dogs, all into one volume that people can then use as a reference volume. And I actually wrote this not as a scientific um, book, although it has scientific references in it, but I wrote it, I and my co-authors wrote it in a popular style so that anybody can read it. Uh, and in fact, some of the reviewers of the book said, you know, this is written in too popular a style. It doesn't come across as a science book. So, uh, so that's why I wrote it and that's what's included in the book. Wonderful. I think that's that is really great that you're highlighting this and specifically also uh, not only, you know, doing it in a language that where many people can enjoy, you know, these beautiful animals and, and who they are, where they live and all those details, but also a language that is understandable to policymakers, to others, where they can find information that is relevant and the importance like you highlight of looking in what ways can we write and communicate that actually, you know, help these animals and these ecosystems survive and talk the language that others understand, uh, such as policymakers or lawmakers uh, that, um, that are thinking more in economic terms. So I think that's such a valuable contribution and there's so much for us to learn from, you know, how do we use language and the scientific data and everything else in ways that we can affect change for animals uh, and at the same time, of course, also look at what is it that other people and other stakeholders are trying to achieve. So really bringing that together. So I think it's wonderful that you have done that in that book. And you've also written another book, which is called Chasing Dr. Doolittle. And maybe we can, we can backtrack or you can backtrack a little bit as in, because not everybody might know this really old movie and then newer versions that have been made. Who was, you know, Dr. Doolittle and how come, you know, you wrote that book? What is it about? And, and you chose uh, this, uh, this title. Sure. 
So the original Dr. Doolittle was a veterinarian who treated a variety of animals. And uh, he had a parrot who could understand the language of a variety of other animals and translate those languages for Dr. Doolittle. So that when animals would come to Dr. Doolittle, the parrot could say, uh, this pig has a sore toe, or uh, this animal's tail hurts, and so on. So these were written mostly as children's stories initially in about the 1920s by a person called Hugh Lofting. Uh, and they're delightful stories to read. But the idea behind it is that uh, the parrot, in this case, is a translator and animals actually have language. So that's why I chose the title of the, my book, Chasing Dr. Doolittle, because what I did, and again, this is a book that I wrote in a popular style, accessible to everybody, but it is based entirely on scientific evidence, on uh, papers in the scientific literature. So I accumulated all the information that we have on uh, either language in animals or language-like abilities in animals, as far as we know, from the scientific literature. And I have to put in a disclaimer, which I put in the beginning of the book, that uh, no one whose papers I cited said that this was language. And they probably would disagree with me that this was language because studying language in scientific circles, studying animal language in scientific circles is not a fashionable thing. So uh, they all talked about communication, but I could glean from their scientific papers information that correlated with some of the features of language that I was presenting uh, and some of the features that you and I discussed earlier too uh, in there. And in the process of doing that, I saw that we have enormous amounts of information of animals either having language or having a lot of language-like abilities that maybe if we explored their abilities a little bit more, we would tip that over into the language category. But essentially what I present there is a lot of information about a lot of animals who can uh, convey information to other animals in different ways, such as, for example, uh, who knew, and I certainly didn't know beforehand, that lizards can convey information. They actually have a grammar in that uh, the way that they lift up their legs and bob their head and lift up their tails in uh, different sequences is equivalent to a, gra a grammar that tells other lizards about uh, the reproduction intentions of the lizards or the aggressive intentions of the lizards. So there's a lot of information like that in the book, a lot of nuggets. And the other thing that I tried to do in that book is that I tried to start off each chapter with my own personal uh, experiences with either animals or with, with people who show some of the same characteristics that the animals do that I talk about 
in that chapter. So I talk about, for example, my encounter in Kenya with a, uh, uh, with a, a black mamba snake, where I and two other biologists were walking along uh, at night and, and uh, only one person, the person in the lead had a flashlight and uh, we were walking along when we heard this rustling sound uh, going some maybe 20 uh, meters or so away from us and heading in a parallel opposite direction. And so the person with the flashlights uh, shown the flashlight uh, on whatever this was, and it turned out to be approximately a three meter long black mamba, which are extremely venomous. Uh, they're called in Kenya, the half hour snakes, because you have allegedly half an hour to live if it bites you. And uh, as soon as the light hit the snake, the snake wheeled around and instantly at lightning speed came towards us. And the only thing that one of us, whoever it was, I don't even remember, could do is yell, jump! And we all jumped through some cat's claw acacias, tearing ourselves, uh, our skin, uh, with deep gashes to avoid the snake. And I have this as an introduction to talking about alarm calls. Why alarm calls can be just simple expressions of emotion or why alarm calls can have more detailed information, such as uh, if we had more time, uh, one of us could have said, I say, old chap, it looks like that black mamba is heading towards us uh, at a, a blinding speed, and perhaps we have less than a second in which to respond. Do you think we should do something about it? Or we could yell, jump, and that would be it. So each chapter starts with, some experience that I have with either dealing with animals or, uh, or people being in particular situations with, uh, uh, for example, where I talk about uh, the uh, mating signals that animals have. I talk about my experience with going to a bar with a fellow graduate student and watching uh, males and females, their exchange eye and hand signals, totally unconsciously, presumably, in which they're trying to pair up with each other. So the book is written in a popular style, but I also present in there some uh, uh, a new theory that I developed with uh, Judith Kiriazis, uh, who is also an animal behaviorist. And uh, she and I developed this theory called a discourse theory, in which essentially we suggest that there is a discourse system uh, based on information coming in from all kinds of other physiological systems that allows language to exist, and that this discourse system is something that extends back very far in evolutionary time. 
So it's not just humans that have this, but many, many animals, including insects and probably other animals uh, as well, have this kind of discourse system theory. So it's a, a blend of interesting stories. It's a blend of uh, a lot of scientific information. It's a blend of a new theory about animal language called the discourse system theory. So that's pretty much it in, in a nutshell. Wonderful. And what I find very interesting, and I, and I find myself uh, having to now be more aware of it and teach myself also, because the word language to me uh, really, you know, makes me think about this verbal something that we speak. And I've heard you many times now talk about body language. Um, and so, of course, I know about body language, but the, the whole aspect of, of communicating and language and expressing ourselves in all kinds of ways, uh, just like you talked about, uh, you know, the lizards, uh, that, you know, often this word language is something that we think about, you know, like, French or German or and not necessarily so much on the on the body language. Well, uh, I think that we really have to extend our concept of language to a variety of other senses. Uh, for example, honeybees have uh, a variety of uh, chemical pheromones that they release and they can vary the concentration of these chemical pheromones so that uh, by varying the concentration of the chemical pheromones, they can uh, convey information to each other about uh, a variety of things, about whether to be aggressive, whether to be docile, uh, whether to uh, fly off searching for something, whether to not fly off, whether to stay. Similarly, ants can do the same kind of of things. They have a variety of chemical pheromones in which by varying the concentration of the chemicals, it's essentially like creating new words in a sentence. Uh, you have an alphabet, which is the chemical structure, but then the concentration would be like putting the alphabet into different sequences so that uh, it changes the meaning of things. Similarly with uh, body language, for example, uh, we have uh, a variety of signals that animals give and humans give. And studies have shown, for example, one study that I read showed that in uh, conversations between two people, 90% of the meaning is conveyed by body language and only 10% is conveyed by the words that the people speak. So that if the words that they speak in the body language are out of sync, the person doesn't believe what the other person is saying. They yes. hear the words and they don't believe it because they get an overall impression of what is going on from the body language. And so these are unexplored systems and systems that we still have to look at in much more detail. Because we are so verbal we, and we have verbal language, we assume that this is the primary language that we should be speaking and everybody else, all other animals in the world should be speaking and so on. But that's not true. We may or may not have 
verbal language is the primary system, certainly in terms of communicating through the written word and through emails and, and so on, the written word uh, is the primary system. But when we communicate with each other, we don't necessarily do that. And this is why uh, people have developed emojis, for example, in emails to try to convey something of the emotional sense that they're trying to get across to people and with other animals as well. Um, and also with humans, you know, for example, studies have shown that uh, where you have uh, partners who live with each other, human partners who live with each other, uh, that these partners can identify each other's odors and make sure that, that the odors that they identify are different from the odors of other people who are, who are not living with them. So, you know, there's a whole realm of senses out there that at this point, we really haven't even explored in detail from the concept that could this be language? And if so, how does it convey information? And how do animals and how do we use this? So all of this is really just scratching the surface so far. Yes, absolutely. And of course, us, you know, studying animals and animal behavior, um, you know, we look at what types of expressions do animals have in either uh, quantity, frequency, uh, but also qualitatively. And, uh, but we, we tend to really not use the word language there. We tend to talk mainly about behavior and about different expressions. And um, so it's also interesting to see, you know, do different words uh, or in what way should we be merging these or in what ways could we maybe come up with other words that could express what it is that we're trying to understand in other animals. Um, yeah, I, I think this is really interesting, for, at least for me to think a lot more about. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing and, and also giving these types of nuances and certainly expanding, um, you know, our different approaches with regards to the different senses and abilities of animals. And as you say, we are very visual species or a vocal species with regards to a language or a written language. Uh, which is not necessarily the way that other animals are in this world. And you have also got quite a revolutionary view on this uh, and, you know, the specifics on closing or the non-existing gap. And can you talk a little bit uh, to that, please? Sure. So uh, this goes back to the idea that uh, a lot of people biologists, linguists, philosophers uh, look at uh, essentially humans as being separate from all the rest of the animals, that there's a gap based on language. However, what I'm trying to get across to people is that if we believe in evolution and we have abundant evidence to show that evolution does work, uh, if we believe in evolution, then why would we have a situation in which a variety of animals along the evolutionary scale can only communicate through instinct and we humans suddenly are the ones who are able to actually have true language. And so what I'm 
saying to people is that this gap does not exist. And that goes back to the discourse system uh, theory that I mentioned earlier, that if you look in terms of the frame of the discourse system theory, which if you're interested, you can read about it in uh, much more detail in Chasing Dr. Doolittle. But if you look at within the framework of the discourse system theory, that gap disappears. And so what I see as the situation is that we have a continuum instead of uh, a gap, but we have a continuum where at one end of the continuum, yes, there are animals who communicate entirely through instinct and uh, perhaps probably do not have language. And then gradually along the continuum, we have some animals who have some aspects of language uh, and uh, probably some aspects of consciousness. And then as we go farther along the continuum towards where we are humans, we have a lot more animals who are conscious, who have intentionality, who have self-awareness, who have uh, either elementary languages or more sophisticated languages. Uh, and so we humans are not alone and we are not part of a gap that exists between us and other animals. Wonderful, thank you. We'll make sure to also, you know, uh, put links to your books. And I believe, um, in how many languages has uh, Chasing Dr. Doolittle been uh, translated? Because it's quite a few, right? Uh, well, no, unfortunately not. Okay. Uh, yeah, the only translation that I'm aware of is in Chinese. Uh, ah, okay, okay. But, uh, Several uh, people have attempted to translate the book into uh, other languages like French, and for whatever reason, they could never work out a deal with the publisher to actually do the translation. So this is unfortunately something that makes me very sad because I think that the book would have a lot of appeal to people who use different languages but right now it's only available in English and Chinese. Okay, yes, yeah. so I think from our conversations, I must have remembered that because I thought, oh, how wonderful. Um, because of course, growing up uh, Dutch-Italian, I know that, um, and, and working all over the world, that, you know, of course it's wonderful if we can communicate in English or read in English, but there's so many of us, um, I'm also not a native speaker in English. So I thought, oh, that's great that it's coming out in all these languages. So I'm sorry to hear uh, that uh, it has been so difficult, but hopefully that will change very soon because it would be wonderful, as you say, to have it in uh, different languages. Now, in the last part of this podcast, what I think would be absolutely wonderful because you already shared so many wonderful stories and your research with us, could you talk a little bit about, you know, the species that you have studied um, language and also what might this mean for other species or what type of information and content have you found in the prairie dogs uh, and that they share among each other, like chatter, for example, that you uh, just previously discussed? 
Well, uh, with the prairie dogs, we have found that uh, the information that they share in their alarm calls is very sophisticated. For example, uh, if a human walks through a prairie dog colony, they can describe in their alarm calls the size and shape of the human. They can describe the color of clothes that the human is wearing, and they can describe the direction of travel and the speed of travel of the human. And in one experiment that we did with uh, black-tailed prairie dogs, we had a person who walked out wearing a blue shirt and blue jeans and sunglasses, and the prairie dogs came up with uh, an alarm call that described the color of the shirt and described the color of the pants, described the person's size and shape. And then the person took a shotgun and shot the shotgun five times on one day with the prairie dogs being around, not at the prairie dogs, just shooting the, the shotgun. And at that point, the prairie dogs added a modifier to him, which we believe coded for the presence of a gun. And for the remaining one month of the experiment, whenever that person showed up, even though he didn't have a gun, subsequently, they always gave the correct description of his size and shape, and always for him put in the modifier that we think means gun. Or it could mean danger, you know, it could mean a variety of things, but it's something that they attached to him. So there's a lot of sophisticated information that the prairie dogs have in their alarm calls. Now, prairie dogs have social chatters where a prairie dog will lift up its head and go chitter, chatter, chitter, chitter, and another one across the colony will go chatter, chatter, chitter, chitter. And we can show that these chatters have different acoustic elements in them. We can show that there are different syntactic elements in there, but we can't get at the meaning. And that gets to the problem of studying animal language in that you need to have something like a Rosetta Stone. You need to have something that will give you a key to decoding what that language is about and what the individual uh, units of that language are about. So in an alarm call, we have a Rosetta Stone. We have a predator who appears. We can videotape the, the predator. Uh, we can record the alarm calls of the prairie dogs. We can videotape their escape responses. When no predator is there, we can play back the alarm calls, videotape the escape responses, and see if they're the same as when the predator is there, suggesting that there is actually meaning in those alarm calls. But when nothing in the behavior changes, there's really little opportunity for having that Rosetta Stone to figure out what it is that the animals are talking about. It would be like somebody listening in on this conversation who didn't know that humans had language and all they would hear is just meaningless, apparently strings of sound which have a certain order to them, but it would be very difficult for them to decode the actual meaning of the language that's involved. So that is a, a problem. Uh, and so what we look for is uh, what are the responses of the animals to a particular context? Or what is the context 
of a particular signal. And does that signal occur in that same context over and over again with a certain probability? Now, in terms of how this can actually influence what uh, animal caregivers uh, do is that uh, generally speaking, in my experience, caregivers of animals are very empathetic and they have a connection with their animals. So they already know something about what their animals are trying to convey to them. But if we paid more attention to the signals that the animals are doing, and if we had some sort of translator, kind of like Dr. Doolittle, that, and kind of like what I'm trying to build with uh, Zoolingua, uh, if we had some kind of translator, the animals could convey more complex information to caregivers. So for example, one animal might be afraid of another animal. Uh, and say in a zoo setting, they don't seem to get along. One animal hides when another animal uh, is, is present. So you could be saying, well, okay, so one animal is probably being aggressive towards the other animal and probably wants to bite him or something. And so that generates the fear. But what if it's something more complex than that? What if it's something in the animal that's fearful's background where he encountered an odor similar to that in a frightening situation? And this animal now, uh, the non-fearful one, is perfectly fine. He's not being aggressive at all. But because of this background odor that the animal encountered, the fearful animal encountered way back in his past, he's being afraid. So if we could have animals expressing these kinds of concepts to us, we would be treating situations much, much more differently than we have today. Right now, we do the best that we can, but we are limited in the kind of information that we can find out about and what we can act upon. Yes, and it's so hard to also create some sort of what we often talk about, some, some sort of dialogue, right? Where you try to see in what ways can we try and give you tools. Um, I don't know whether you, know, you would agree that some of the symbol work or the uh, association work that people have been doing to try and you know, come up with being able to choose what type of food you would like or what type of enrichment activities you would like or with who you would like to be uh, in the environment so that it almost you know, come up with some sort of language that both can understand and, and use uh, to be able to you know, make choices or to have some control over uh, the things that happen to them or what it is that they want. Uh, would, you, would you see that there's more opportunity for us to, to think about um, you know, communicating with animals in that way? Absolutely. Um, and this is a really good start. Uh, and uh, there are people who, for example, are teaching animals uh, to communicate concepts or, or ideas by making gestures. For example, there's a person called Sean Senegal who has taught dogs and also taught horses to communicate 
uh, what, uh, for example, with the horses, whether a horse wants to eat carrots or whether the horse wants to eat hay by making different kinds of body movements. And same thing with dogs, whether a dog hurts in a particular place or whether the dog wants to do something by making various kinds of body movements. But uh, this is something that takes a lot of time to do. Uh, and if we actually had, and, and I think that we now with the advent of artificial intelligence technology, I think that we now have the capability increasingly of being able to do that. We might, without having to spend the time teaching animals to do certain things, we might be able to glean out more sophisticated ideas of what the animal really wants to do and what the animal is afraid of and what the animal is comfortable with. And so we can design better environments for animals in zoos. We can uh, pair animals with other animals in a better situation. Uh, we can have better interactions between animals and people once we have this kind of capability. So I think that this is coming and I think that it's going to really change uh, how animals are cared for by caregivers. And also, I think this is going to change how people in general view animals. Let me just give you a short story about uh, my experience with talking to people about prairie dogs. When I talk to people about prairie dogs, I start off by telling them about the conservation aspects of prairie dogs that we mentioned. They're down to one to two percent of what where they were 120 years ago. And people's eyes glaze over. This is now a general audience. People's eyes glaze over because they've heard this same story about elephants, they've heard this about tigers, they've heard this about lions, and so on. But when I tell people that prairie dogs can talk to each other, they can convey sophisticated concepts to each other, like what color of clothes you're wearing, uh, uh, the size and shape of something, what is uh, the size of a coyote, what is the coat color of a coyote, people's eyes suddenly light up and they say, oh, they can talk, maybe they're like us, maybe we don't need to kill them, maybe we should pay more attention to them, maybe we should have more empathy for them. And I think that this is what's going to happen in the world in general. Once we get some of this technology going, and once we start having people recognize that animals are much more complex than we think they are, than a lot of people think they are. Animals have thoughts, animals are sentient beings, they have hopes and dreams of their own, and that they're much more like us than we've given them credit for. Yes, wonderful. And so important, again, you're highlighting the importance of storytelling and telling really good stories that, you know, touch people's hearts and that make people laugh and think and wonder and become curious. Uh, and not like you say, you know, all these facts and all these things that people have indeed heard uh, so many times. And, you know, you've talked also about the importance of knowing the animals and really, you know, empathy for animals and being around animals because that can really make a difference in how we act um, and you mentioned that you are doing sometimes consulting work for people with dogs 
And uh, sometimes the podcast also is listened to by people who are caring for dogs or doing dog behavior consulting. So could you talk a little bit or share a story about perhaps aggression versus fear um, and aspects of your consulting work? Sure. Uh, I don't do consulting now anymore because I've run out of time with my other projects. But when I used to do consulting with uh, uh, pet problems that people had, I recognized that a lot of people really misinterpreted a lot of the behavior of their animals. And with dogs, one of the common things that I would get is somebody would call me and say, my dog is aggressive, my dog wants to bite me. And I would go over to their house and I'd say, okay, introduce me to your dog, show me. And uh, there might be a, a male person there speaking in a deep gravelly voice. And he would go over to his dog and go, good dog, come here, dog. And the dog would run into a corner and uh, start showing his teeth. And the man would say, see, the dog is aggressive. He wants to bite me. Now, I would look, and with my knowledge of dog body language, I would see that the dog is not showing aggressive signals. The dog is showing fear signals. And the man would tower over the dog and say, what's the matter with your dog? Come here. And so then I would work with the person and say, you know, your dog is really afraid of you. Why don't you back off and try something like this? instead of saying, good dog, say, good dog, in a high-pitched voice. Because high pitches are things that dogs recognize as either praise or uh, good feeling or okay signals. And low voices are dogs that uh, are signals that dogs uh, are programmed to look at as aggressive signals or signals of displeasure. So once I convinced the person to say, good dog, hi, how are you? What a great dog you are. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I get a call saying, you know, you're right. I'm having a great relationship with my dog. My dog isn't trying to bite me anymore. My dog isn't growling at me anymore, not showing any teeth. And thank you. And so uh, that, really has shown me that a lot of people, even though they may think that they know what they're doing with their pets, really fundamentally don't have enough knowledge to understand what it is that their pet is trying to get across to them. And again, go back to what I'm doing with Zoolingua, this is uh, part of the idea that I'm trying to develop here, which is to have a, a translator which would allow people to assess these signals and tell them in a language that they understand, your dog is frightened of you, please back off. Or could do it from the dog standpoint, I'm frightened of you, please back off. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, 
I have to think about all, of course, behavior and observations and really understanding deeply the, the species or the individual that we're working in and interspecies uh, communication of all kinds. And you've shared so much information with us today and on wonderful stories. And of course, you know, the iBuzz episode is mainly listened to by people working in the zoos and aquariums. And, you know, at the end of this podcast, would you like to share with us what kind of research with regards to language you would like to see done in zoos and aquariums? Sure, I would like to see more people paying attention to the signals that animals in zoos and aquariums produce in specific contexts. Not just noticing that here's a signal, but what is the context of that signal? When does that signal occur? Uh, what is the specific context? Who's involved? Uh, what other animals are around? What other people are around? Uh, and essentially put together kind of a behavioral matrix of uh, what is the signal? Uh, when does it occur? Uh, who is around? Under what circumstances? What other individuals? What other animals are there? And, and so on. Uh, and that would be extremely helpful towards starting to build up this Rosetta Stone of decoding the languages of other animals. And I think that it would be very helpful to people in zoos and aquaria too, because this would give them more insight into the behavior of the animals within specific contexts and perhaps allow them to have better insights into when the animals are comfortable, when the animals are uncomfortable, what the animals need, what the animals don't need. So that's what I would really like to see people do. Great. Well, I, we know that uh, researchers and students can be listening and zoos and aquariums often have the opportunity to have, you know, lists of topics and specifics for outside um, research facilities that want to come and do research to choose from. So this is just wonderful to be able to add to it. And of course, as you say, you know, the importance of why are things happening and how are, what are all the effects? Because we know that sometimes, you know, people will say, well, we can only do it on these days or with these people or in this situation. And so what are the various things there that are at play and that have to do with, you know, what animals think and feel and experience and, and of course the things that we are doing. Now, before, you know, you have talked about language, you know, the difference between communication and language, and of course, language like abilities, lots of different, you know, aspects of what animals are capable of, and specific, of course, prairie dogs that you have spoken about. In conclusion, can you share uh, a fun story? And I remember seeing a, a beautiful video of yours where you also talk about the dialects um, between the different species. So could you share in conclusion a nice animal story and, and that could be on dialects or anything else that, that you would like? Sure, actually uh, uh, with dialects, we've just, uh, my uh, colleagues and uh, former graduate students and I have just had a paper accepted in behavioral processes uh, about dialects and black-tailed prairie dogs. But the story that uh, I will share with you is a, a story that's, uh, shows some 
thinking ability on the part of uh, prairie dogs. And that is that, uh, as I mentioned, they're territorial. And so males and females sometimes on the edges of territories will fight with each other if one crosses the boundary of the territory into the territory of another. And we were watching a couple of males, one of whom had transgressed into another's territory. And the owner of the territory was beating the stuffings out of the other male. The other male was really getting beaten up very badly. And so the male that was getting beaten up suddenly came out with a coyote alarm call. Now there was no coyote there, but he made the alarm call and the other one, the one that was beating him up, stood up and started looking around. Where's the coyote? Where's the coyote? While the one who was getting beaten up ran away into his territory and into his burrow. So he practiced deception here. He fooled the other prairie dog uh, as a way of getting out of perhaps losing his life in the process, which I think is remarkable when you consider that this is a rodent with a relatively small brain. And I think that that really shows that there is far, far more continuity in thinking ability and consciousness and, and language than we've given animals credit for. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Con, for this story. I think it's, like you say, so important that you share these stories because we know of, you know, deceptions like from, you know, BBC documentaries from capuchins and other, you know, primates living together in the same area and using that or using it between each other, but not necessarily in other species. And so it's wonderful that you end this podcast on this uh, beautiful story uh, of thinking and um, behavior of, of prairie dogs. Thank you so much. So thanks so much again for coming onto the podcast and sharing a little bit of your many, many decades of work. We'll make sure, of course, to link to your website and link to your books and, of course, to Zoolingua. And hopefully this podcast is recorded during COVID time, but hopefully in the future you can get back to uh, collecting data and, and continuing your research and understanding the languages of other animals. Thank you, Sabrina, and thank you for a great interview. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. We hope to have you back some other day to hear more stories about, you know, your continued work. Thank you so much, Con. Thank you. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists 
from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing. <laughs>